All right, if you could all stand. We're going to read Judges 7, verses 1 through 21. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say to you, This one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps from the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, By the three hundred men who lapped I will save you, and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the the other people go, every man to his place. So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands. And he sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those three hundred men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. And it happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down to the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant. And you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hands shall be strengthened to go up against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. Now the Midianites and Amalekites, all the people of the east, were laying in the valley as numerous as the locusts, and their camels were without number, as a sand by the seashore in multitude. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I have had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. Then he divided the three hundred men into three companies, and he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. Watch. And when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the three hundred men who were with him came came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted the watch. And they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their hands and the trumpets in their right hand for blowing. And they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp. And the whole army ran and cried out and fled. You may be seated. Would you join me in prayer as we 
uh, begin to, to dive into God's Word here in Judges 6, 7, and 8. Let's pray. Lord, I love your Word. Thank you for your Word. As the psalmist says, it's my meditation all the day. I pray there would be rejoicing at the sound of your words today, as much rejoicing as in all riches. See that this people, Lord, contemplate your ways in all things. And I pray that we would be a people who hold your word in high regard. May it never be that we neglect your word. May it never be that we forget your word in our days. When you call to us through your word, Lord, I pray that we would be ready to take action. Give us ears this day to hear and give us grace to walk with you wherever you lead. Remind us that it's for your glory and your honor that we're here. Remind us of that truth always. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to read Hebrews 11.32 to begin our time here. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. Through the course of the month of September, we're going to be looking at some individuals listed right here in Hebrews 11.32. I want to give you the basis for what we're doing and why we're doing what we're doing. The names, the biographies, if you will, of folks we'll be studying through the month of September. Gideon this week, uh, Samson next week, Samuel the following week, and then we'll close September by looking at the life of David. These are four men who are also listed in Hebrews 11, men of faith. And so we're going to uh, participate in a faith reprise, so to speak, in the month of September. And we see even actually here, if you're still in Hebrews 11, in verse 34, the end of 34, there are some outcomes. Out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. All three of those really apply to uh, this individual we're looking at this morning, Gideon. I'd like to give you just a brief context if you'll turn now to the book of Judges. And I'd like to give you a big picture uh, of the context. This context, I believe, will will help us as we study the life of Gideon and the life of Samson. Both of their lives are found here in this book of Judges. And and there's two verses. I'm just going to read the one because it says the same thing in both. Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's also found in Judges 17, verse 6. Same words. No king, no acknowledgement of godly leadership in place, no absolute standards in place. Each one operated according to their best interests. No awareness of, or submission to God as ruler over the people at this time. Apart from the judges who come on the scene through God's merciful intervention, there's no one who seems to give much thought to God as ruler over their life. Judges picks up one generation after Joshua dies. Judges chapter 2 verse 10. Another big context verse. When Joshua's generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Think about that. One generation removed from Joshua and they don't know about the Lord or the work of the Lord. So the context of the book of Judges could be summed up in two verses. Judges 2 verse 10 and Judges 21 verse 25. Okay? Embedded within this context is a cycle. A cycle. You know, our lives are lived on a cycle, so to speak. We, we have even by the seasons in the summer... We tend as families, if you go through your calendar, there are probably certain things on the cycle of the calendar that you have been accustomed to doing, right? Right now in the summer, some of you are probably um, benefiting from a garden. If you do garden work and you are uh, reaping the results of uh, planting, you've been enjoying tomatoes and cucumbers and all these wonderful things from the garden, In the fall, there'll be certain preparations that you'll be making 
uh, in your home, probably getting things ready for winter yet to come. In winter, you have certain things, certain cycle patterns that you're accustomed to doing. And then spring comes, and we're ready for uh, to be outside again. And, and spring cleaning comes with that. Yes, we can all smile, and that's something we look forward to. Uh, but there are certain patterns in that cycle of life that we live. And there's, there's a pattern. There's a certain rhythm to the book of Judges. You can sketch out this cycle. It's not necessarily a pleasant cycle. But there's definitely a pattern and a rhythm to it. In fact, if you would, Judges chapter 2. I'm going to give you this real quick because it speaks to what I'm talking about. Follow with me in Judges 2 verse 11. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them, and they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. So the people, this is the first part of the cycle, the people did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. This is the second part of the cycle. The people do evil in the sight of the Lord, and then the Lord hands them over, delivers them over to enemies. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. Imagine that, the hand of the Lord against you for calamity wherever you go. And as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed... Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Here's another part of the cycle. They, they, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord hands them over to surrounding enemies. The people, for a time after having gone through this, the people are, are crying out to the Lord. And the Lord, because he's merciful to his people, he raises up then a judge, a deliverer. Another word for judge would be a deliverer. He raises up a judge to come on the scene to rescue his people from oppression. Okay? We keep reading in the text. Chapter 2, verse 17. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. So we see that God raises up a judge. And during the days of that judge, there's peace in the land. There's peace in the land. God provides peace in the land during all of the days of that judge that he raises up. Verse 19. It came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. So following peace in the land, once that judge dies, then what happens in the cycle is the people go right back to doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And we go all the way back around again. That's the cycle in the book of Judges. In Judges chapter 2, those verses I just read give us a picture of what that cycle looked like in the life of God's people. I'd like you to mark that cycle in the life of Gideon. I, I believe you can see that cycle uh, come into focus as we read through Judges 6, 7, and 8. You know, by the time you reach Judges 6, you've already learned of, of Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar and, and Deborah. And at the conclusion of Deborah's song in Judges 5, you read this line, the very last line in Judges 5. So the land had rest for 40 years. Now, if you just listen to the cycle, you know what comes next after rest. You know what comes next after peace. The judge dies and the people do evil in the sight of the Lord. That's the cycle. And Judges 6 introduces another cycle. And it brings to our attention the life of Gideon, the, the fifth judge now, the son of Joash, the Abiezrite of the half-tribe of Manasseh. Gideon's life here in the scriptures covers three whole chapters. And so we're not going to go verse by verse this morning. All right, I know that's disappointing maybe to some of you. But we're not going to go verse by verse through all three chapters. Uh, I want to think overview this morning of Gideon. But I don't want to simply give you a resume of his activities I don't want you leaving here this morning thinking, Gideon did some good things and he failed at some things. Sounds a lot like me. Good story. No, my hope is that you see God at work in Gideon's life. 
my hope is that you start to see the power of God at work in the life of one man and how this one man changed the course of an entire nation, if but for a time. God is after something, and listen, not just with Gideon, but with you and me as well. God's after something. Do you know what God's after in this life? Any idea of what he desires from your life? Have you ever considered how he wants you to spend your days before him? You see, Gideon's story in many ways is a replica of what God wants out of you too. Gideon is instructed by God on a few different occasions. He's instructed to move, to act, to speak, to get himself in position so that, all right, listen, here's why, listen. So that he might give God glory with his life. That's why. God is moving Gideon that Gideon might glorify God. God is at work in Gideon to draw all people to the glory of God. God raises up his judges not simply because he can, because he's God. Not simply because he takes pity on his people, he does. Not simply because he wants to take vengeance on those who are oppressing his people. We see that he does that as well. But he raises up judges like Gideon to show his glory. That's why he does it. So the question I want to deal with this morning in our remaining time is, how does God get glory through Gideon's life? How does God get glory through Gideon's life? Glory, the word in and of itself, has in mind weight. Weight. We talk about giving God glory. We give him weight. What's the, what's the weight? What's the emphasis? What's the scope, the capacity that we are giving God with our lives? The New Testament word doxa. One writer says that it defines it as the light that comes from something brilliant. He goes on, he says, its only proper use is in regard to God. Glory. James MacDonald in his book, Vertical Church, he says that glory is the supernatural signature where God has been at work. Love that. Supernatural signature where God has been at work. And he goes on and he says, we need to remember something about God's glory. We need to remember that, that glory is the purpose for creation itself. In Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare what? What do they declare? The glory of God. Right? We keep going. He says that, that the glory is the purpose for the Exodus. We've covered the Exodus and, and back in Exodus 14, 4. The Lord speaking to Moses and he says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor or some translations, glory over Pharaoh and over his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. Glory is the purpose for all of mankind. Isaiah 43, verse 7, God says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. I formed him, yes, I've made him for my glory. Glory is the purpose for salvation. Ephesians 1, verse 12, that we who first trusted in Christ should be what? To the praise of his glory. We need to also be reminded that glory is the purpose of our sanctification. Corinthians 6, 20 says that you were bought at a price. Therefore, what are we supposed to do with our bodies? Glorify God in our body and in your spirit, which are God's. Psalm 29, verse 2 says, Given to the Lord, the glory do his name. Given to the Lord, the glory do his name. What is God after in the life of Gideon? He's after glory. What's God after in your life? He's after glory. That's what he's after. He's called us to a relationship, and out of that relationship is intended to flow glory do his name. That glory gets manifested as we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That glory gets manifested as we obey God's word, as we take him at his word and act accordingly, what we've been talking about in Hebrews chapter 11. His glory is manifested as we witness to Jesus, Acts 1.8. With the power that's given to us from on high, we become witnesses to Jesus. The glory is manifested as we grow in him. See, it's God's desire that Christ's followers bear much fruit. We bear much fruit then showing ourselves to be his disciples. We ought to be about growing to maturity, not stagnating. Growing to maturity. That's how we glorify God in these bodies he's given to us. 
So looking at Gideon's life, I want us to track God's glory. God is moving Gideon down a path where God is going to get glory. And I want you to consider how wonderful it is. A life moved by God in such a way that he gets all the glory for what happens. And so we need to ask a question as we think about this, where we're headed with this text. Are you all in this morning? You, as you sit in a chair this morning, are you all in to submit your one life to God so that he can get the glory He can get the honor. He can get the praise that he deserves. Are you willing to pursue what he wants for your life? And are you desirous? Is there something in here that desires to give him credit for whatever happens in your life? I want you to remember the outcomes we spoke of last week in Hebrews 11. And I want to bring to your attention that walking by faith may lead to an outcome of triumph or deliverance. But it might also lead to an outcome of defeat or even death. And it's good to remember that as you move at God's bidding, intent on giving him glory. You see, because he can be glorified in your life and he can be glorified through your death. Giving God glory is not to be equated with an outcome that is only pleasant or only favorable. In fact, we see this in the life of Jesus himself, don't we? Remember his prayer in John 17, verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may also glorify you. You see, God through the cross would bring glory to his son. His son was lifted up. And it was through Christ's death that Jesus glorified his father. So as we look at Judges 6, 7, and 8, how does God get glory in Gideon's life? Here's the first thing I want you to get. God first addressed this three-letter word we don't oftentimes like to talk about in church circles. He first addressed S-I-N, sin. That's the first thing. Judges 6, the first 10 verses. The nation of Israel went from 40 years of peace in chapter 5, verse 31, to doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Look at 6, verse 1. There's the beginning of the cycle. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Right? God delivers them over this time into the hands of the Midianites for seven years. Seven years. How many of you are seven years old? Anybody seven years old in here? Any seven-year-olds? No seven-year-olds? Anybody close to seven? We've got a couple that are close to seven. Six and eight, maybe nine. Good. Seven years long. He hands them over and they are oppressed for seven years. Things were so bad that the children of God were hiding out in dens and caves and making strongholds in the mountains. That's how bad things were. The problem was that Israel was dependent upon their crops. Israel was an agricultural nation. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east would come up to Israel at the time of harvest. And they'd bring their livestock, their tents, and their loads of camels. And they'd set up shop for time in Israel. Essentially plundering the crops, taking them as their own. So the result was this. Israel was greatly impoverished. That's what the text says. They became greatly impoverished. No food, no livelihood, no means of providing for your family. Think about how that might go with you. Somebody comes in, steals all your crops, and you're relying upon your crops for your food to provide for your family. This has been happening for seven years. And so they cry out to the Lord. This is part of the cycle in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 6. They're crying out to the Lord for help. And the Lord, in verses 8 through 10, he sends a, a prophet. He sends a prophet with a clear message. Essentially, the prophet says this. Thus says the Lord... Prophets are good at saying that. Thus says the Lord. He says, I brought you up out of Egypt. I brought you out of the house of bondage. I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians. I drove them out before you. I gave you their land. I reminded you of who I am. I am the Lord your God. I told you at that time not to fear the Amorites in whose land you dwell. And here's the very last thing that's spoken. But you have not obeyed my voice. The Lord sent the prophet to the children of Israel, of which Gideon was one. The people cried out, and the Lord sends a prophet who reminds them of God's presence in their past. And how he had rescued them out of Egypt. They're crying out for help, and God sends a prophet to speak a word of warning. After reminding them of how God's presence had gone with them in Egypt, he says, but you have not obeyed my voice. Listen, this is important for us to get. Disobedience to God's voice does not bring God glory. 
I'll say it one more time because it's really important. Disobedience to God's voice does not bring God glory. So the first thing that gets addressed right here in Gideon's context is S-I-N, sin. The first 10 verses of Judges 6 is a precursor to where he goes from verse 11 forward, where we're introduced then to Gideon. We receive the immediate context of Gideon, and then we are brought through the door to meet this young man and his family. And while nothing more is said of the prophet after verse 10, I'm drawn to what is said and believe it represents a fitting first step for God, getting glory through Gideon. God is infinitely holy. He's just. He's pure. Sin is not tolerated by God. In a nation that he has chosen is not obeying his voice at this time. What's God to do? His people cry out for deliverance from the hands of the Midianites. According to the cycle, God is supposed to raise up a judge about right now to rescue his people, right? Not so fast, God says. You see, God is more concerned about dealing with the sin of his people than putting a patch on their difficult situation. He's more concerned about dealing with the sin of his people than putting a patch on their difficult situation. You see, when God is dealing with sin, what's the response called for on our end? What's the response? Repentance. Repent. Have you ever cried out to God, asking him to deliver you from some oppressive situation, some overwhelming circumstance, and instead of rescuing you, he wants you... He wants to speak with you about your sin. Before he makes himself known, he desires to draw your attention to the sin that remains in your life. You see, Israel had disobeyed the voice of God. This is so important for us to understand. You'll find yourself on this endless gerbil wheel of mediocrity. Unless you recognize the real source of the problem facing you. The real source of the problem wasn't the Midianites, was it? Instead of immediately asking for God to bail you out, perhaps it would be prudent to have him examine you to see if there is any wicked, offensive way in you. I hope that sounds familiar because David prayed this. Repent of your sins, the Bible says, that times of refreshing may come. In the context of the nation's sin, God shows up to Gideon, and he's about to raise up a mighty warrior for his glory. How does God get glory in Gideon's life? Second thing is that he assures him of his presence. He first addresses sin, but now he assures him of his presence. Verses 11 through 24 Listen to how the Lord assures Gideon. Verse 12, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. 6.14, go in this might of yours. Have I not sent you? 6 verse 16, surely I will be with you and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. And after all this, Gideon asks, In verse 17, if I have now found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Gideon is asking for verification. Verification, please. I need verification that this is the Lord speaking. And we see that through this sign, Gideon goes and he brings back some food and the angel of God gives him instructions, sticks out his staff. And we see in verse 21, that fire comes up out of the rock, consumes the meat and the unleavened bread. The angel of the Lord departs. Verse 22, then Gideon perceives that he was the angel of the Lord. In fact, Gideon is assured of Jehovah Shalom in this moment. The Lord is peace. He builds an altar. And and he's there reminded that the Lord is peace. Even in the midst of his difficult situation, The land is being oppressed. See, it's important we understand, as Gideon is seeking verification, and he comes to the conclusion here in verse 22, verification is completed. (laughs) 
But God's not done with Gideon. You see, when God makes himself known in our lives, he's not simply interested in introducing himself. He's not just looking to verify himself to you. But he desires relationship. An ongoing, glory-loaded relationship. He's not after an acquaintance kind of relationship. Yeah, I know God. I know, I know what, he, what he does. No, he's looking for an intimate relationship. One of those relationships where both parties care deeply about each other. God is working on building a relationship with Gideon and he comes back that night, the scripture says, with a further word for him. So God first addresses sin. He then comes alongside Gideon in the wine press, threshing wheat, assuring him of his presence, during, desiring to use him in a mighty way to rescue his people from the oppressive hand of the Midianites. How else does God get glory in this, in Gideon's life? Number three, he assigns him his first real test. He assigns him his first real test. We see this in 25 through 32 of chapter 6. Following the resurrection, I was reminded of this. You know, Jesus and Peter have this restorative conversation. You remember that? Peter had denied his Lord three times before the cross. And now Peter, here he is standing before the Lord Jesus. And he hears Jesus say, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And the response comes, feed my lambs. He says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Simon says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And the response is, tend my sheep. And a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And the response was, feed my sheep. You see, on the other side of the resurrection, this was Peter's first real test. Will you choose to love me, Peter? Will you tend my sheep? Will you feed them? Gideon, having recently verified that the Lord was speaking to him in the wine press, assuring him of his presence to save Israel, he now receives his first real test. You see, the test literally hits close to home. See, because this test involves his father. It involves his father. He's instructed to tear down the altar of Baal that belongs to his father. Red flag. And he's told to demolish the wooden image next to it. In addition to tearing down... He's instructed to build an altar to the Lord in its place. You see, Gideon is being called to effect change where it is blatantly needed first, right in his backyard. This test will reveal whether he fears his family members over and above the Lord God. This test will shine light on what Gideon thinks about God, whether he will obey or not. This test will determine whether he truly loves God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. This test will pave the way for God's glory to either be revealed or concealed. How is he going to respond to the test? And don't think for a moment that God is going to leave you alone following a time of genuine repentance. What better way to see if you mean what you say, then by placing a test before you. The Bible tells us that God tests the genuineness of our faith through fiery trials. Amen? Fiery trials. Second Peter chapter 1. That's how he tests the genuineness of our faith. Can you think of something more difficult than a test that deals with a family member? Anybody here ever gone through a difficult time, a conflict situation with either an immediate or extended family member? We know, when I even mention those words, there's certain emotions welling up within you because you know how hard that is. This is what Gideon is faced with. He carries out God's instruction. In fact, he finds ten others to help him accomplish this. But notice he fears his father's household and the men of the city. Listen, as you read the account of Gideon, one of the things you pick up is this thread of fear. 
Gideon has a thread of fear that has been running through the course of, of his life. We see it in the text. He fears his father's household and the men of the city. Now, I don't blame Gideon for carrying out the task at night. He's fearful of his father's household and the men of the city. Think about that for just a moment. Is there anyone in the Abiezrite clan who is obeying the word of God right now? Is there anyone in this city who cares about God's glory? Gideon is instructed to tear down these images of Baal and Ashtra and in in its place build an altar to the Lord. And he knows that very well that by doing this, his father's household and the men of the city are not going to like it at all. Well, the test comes to Gideon, and you sense the difficulties connected with family ties. God is calling him to tear down something that belongs to his father, something that the majority of the men in the city are clinging to, these gods of Baal and Ashtoreth. And God is already assured, on the other hand, he's already assured Gideon of saving Israel from Midian. Here's an important thing we need to understand as we read this part of the passage. Midian isn't going anywhere until Baal is torn down. That's the principle here. Midian isn't going anywhere. The people are crying out for deliverance from Midian. And yet they seem to be oblivious to this giant altar of Baal in their backyard. Wooden images are still up. Oh God, help us. Help us. Help you? Why would I want to help you? We take that, the application. In your life and my life, the bail has to go. The wooden images have to go. Don't be asking for relief from whatever your Midian is while you wallow in disobedience. Destroy the bales. Get serious about what God has called you to. You know, we come to a church building and we think that by doing so, we're in with God. See, God's presence is transcendent. It's transcendent. He's, uh, we, we use the word omnipresent, right? Omnipresent. We're maybe more familiar with omnipresent. He's, God is everywhere, right? And that's true. But perhaps we've abused that idea of God's presence. I would ask, have we translated his omnipresence into thinking that he's also obligated to manifest his presence here in this place? in this building, in, on this Sunday morning? Is he, obligated, is he obligated to manifest his presence among a people, listen, who genuinely have little or no desire for a relationship? We sit here today and I wonder how many bales are represented? How many wooden images are there? The bales and wooden images need to be demolished. Joshua was informed by God that someone in the camp had stolen some of the plunder from Jericho. And God said the plunder from that battle was not to be taken. And there was sin in the camp, and they were defeated by lowly Ai because they didn't take care of the sin in their camp. See, God's not in the numbers. We see that even in this story of, of Gideon. He's not in the numbers. Ai had less numbers than Israel, but numbers don't always win the day. Obedience from the heart is what God is after. He's desiring glory from his people, not scheming, not manipulating, not religious exercise. God doesn't get glory when his people do their own thing or go their own stubborn way. Moses in Exodus 33, just a chapter removed from the debacle of the golden calf. You remember the story? Moses wants God's presence to go with him. He says, show me your way, Lord, that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight. And God says, my presence will go with you. Now, I don't believe for a moment that he's talking about his omnipresence, that God is everywhere. He said, my presence will go with you. There's something, there's something about his manifested presence in the moment that makes this much different. Moses says, if your presence does not, listen to what he says, if your presence does not go up with us, do not bring us up from here. For how will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. 
That's Exodus 33. You see, God's presence is his glory manifested right here in the now. Moses tells God that if your presence isn't going with us, then let's stop what we're doing. Let's just stop. I don't want to go if your presence doesn't go with us. Have we ever considered this from the perspective of our church gathering? Have we ever felt this same urgency of Moses, the same desire of his to experience and know the glory of God manifested in these gatherings as we meet together on a Sunday morning? If God's presence doesn't show up here, why are we taking the time to meet? It's really a question Malachi the prophet asked. Malachi, he's warning the people that it would be better for the doors of God's house to close than to light profane fires and give God half-hearted leftovers. Is there a desire here to have his presence among us right now? Not simply state the fact that God is omnipresent. We know he's everywhere. If there is that desire, how are we preparing ourselves for him to show up? See, there's preparation involved in that. How much time and attention is given to glorifying God with our lives? I praise God that Gideon passes this first test. And by the way, he also undergoes a death threat in the process. If you read the text, they wanted to take his life because they tore down the bales. An important part for us to understand is that obedience to God's instructions may cost you dearly. How else does God get glory in the text? Fourthly, we see he equips him with the spirit of the Lord. I love this. Verse 34, chapter 6. Before going into the battle, friends, you need the spirit of the Lord. You need the spirit of the Lord. You remember David, mighty warrior? We're going to be talking about him in a few weeks. But David, before he goes into battle with the giant Goliath, he takes with him his staff, his shepherd's bag, his stones, his slingshot. But we don't, we don't see it in chapter 17. The most important thing he takes into the battle, it's in Samuel 16, and that's the spirit of the Lord. You see, no one can say, honestly, the battle is the Lord's unless he has the spirit of Christ dwelling upon him. And David had that in his life. It's a great example. And so here with Gideon, having verified, having verified the Lord's identity and passed God's first test, the text says that the Midianites, Amalekites, and the people of the east gathered together. This is verse 33, chapter 6. They gathered together. You know what I'm thinking is happening about right now? I'm thinking that this is about harvest time. Must be harvest time. It's time to waste Israel once more. And then verse 34 says, but... But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. I love this. Things are going to turn out differently this time. The Midianites are in for a battle this time around. No more cowardly Israelites hiding out in caves and dens. No more plundering and pillaging the people of God. There's a man of God in Israel now who's about to lead God's people out of poverty. There's a man of God in Israel who has the spirit of God operating in him. And he gathers his clan, the Ebiezerites. He calls his tribe, Manasseh, and even calls some of the nearby tribes, Asher and Zebulon and Naphtali. And they come when Gideon calls. Gideon is no longer hiding away in the wine press, but he's rallying the troops right now to fight a battle. The enemy is pressing in, but the spirit of God is present this time. And I'm reminded of the passage of scripture in 1 John 4, 4 that says, Greater is he who is in us than who is in the world. Gideon has the Spirit of God in him, and he's about ready to go into battle. You see, God gets glory when his Spirit is in operation. The Spirit is always pointing to the things of the Lord. He's always leading in truth. He's guiding, he's leading, he's speaking the things the Lord would have him speak. And so here we've got to remind ourselves again, the Lord is after what? He's after glory. And the Spirit works in ways to see that God gets glory. And the Bible says that operation in the Spirit pleases God. So a life that brings glory to God pleases God. So this time the enemy gathers for battle. And instead of Israel running away and hiding, the man of God equipped with the Spirit of God, he runs to gather his own army. He's prepared and he's ready to enter right into the fray. But at the end of Judges 6, we see Gideon puts two tests before God. As he's looking at the opposition down in the valley and he's seeing the numbers that have gathered to his side, Gideon is seeking now confirmation. He's got verification of who God is. But he's needing a little confirmation right now in the midst of what he sees. How does God get glory through Gideon's life? 
I believe fifthly here we see in the text, he confirms his plan. He confirms his plan to work through him. He confirms his plan to work through him. We see this at the end of chapter 6. God confirms his plan to save Israel by answering both of Gideon's questions. Remember, the, this is probably one of the more familiar passages and parts of Gideon's story. God puts the dew on the, on the fleece only the first time around, right? And the second time, God keeps the fleece dry and provides dew all around it. And so here what we have essentially is confirmation settled. Gideon now, I love what one writer says, Gideon at this point is all in. He's all in. Gideon awakens the next morning with his men. Notice he's referred to as Jerubbaal at this point. That was the name given to him after he passed the test. This mighty warrior, this one who has obeyed God. He's ready to go to battle. Verification of who the Lord is. He's passed the Lord's first test. And now the Lord has confirmed with him that the plan is still moving forward. God is about to get great glory in Judges chapter 7. How does he get glory through Gideon? In Judges 7, we see he removes his resources. He removes his resources. God removes Gideon's resources. Gideon is about to engage in battle, but before he does, the Lord speaks to him and he says, Hey, Gideon, the people who are with you are too many. Look at verse 2 of chapter 7. The people are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand. Listen to the reason. Lest Israel claim glory, there it is, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. So what does God do? He tells Gideon, let everyone who is fearful and afraid depart from the battle line. 22,000 leave. What a bunch of cowards. 22,000 of them, gone. That left 10,000. Oh, by the way, Gideon didn't leave. And I mention that because, remember, what was, what, what's been prevalent in Gideon's life up to this point? Fear. Fear. Isn't it interesting that God uses the very criteria which Gideon had lived a large part of his life by? Fear. And he says, anyone who's fearful and afraid can go home. That's the first criteria. 22,000 gone. But God's not done. He tells Gideon, you still have too many. Take them down to the water and I'm going to further sift them for you. Those who drink water from their knees can go home. Those who lap water like a dog. Those are the keepers, Gideon. 300 men lapped water like a dog with their tongue. So another 9,700 were dismissed from Gideon's army. 300 men are preparing to head into battle. And in chapter 8, you see that the enemy opposition numbered 135,000. Listen to this. This is important. Gideon, before his army was pared down, had 32,000 men. Now he has 300 to go up against 135,000. If my math is correct, that means Gideon is outnumbered 450 to 1. That means that the opposition is 450 times larger than Gideon's army. Remember what's at stake in the battle. God's glory. With thousands of people fighting for Israel, how easy it would be to boast about the great things they did to make it happen. But God takes away the resources. Not only does he remove the thousands of resources, he makes the situation really appear lopsided. He sets it up so that if Israel wins, Israel and the surrounding nations have no doubt at all who orchestrated this one. Everyone, everyone knows that 300 men don't stand a chance against 135,000. You see, God is in the glory business, isn't he? He desires to get glory. Gideon is not found wavering at this point, wondering, I'm sure, but he's not wavering. At least the text doesn't tell us so. But just in case, I love what God does here in the midst of the preparation right before he goes into battle. This is another thing that I was considering as we think about how God gets glory. Uh, Number seven, Gideon stops to worship the Lord. He stops to worship the Lord. He tells Gideon that he's delivered this enemy into his hands. And then he says this in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 7. But if you are afraid to go down. Did you see that? If you are afraid to go down to attack the camp, Gideon. 
I want you to go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. God knows his mighty warrior. He knows him. And he's so gracious to come alongside for one more confirmation. One more reassurance. One more sign that will convince him to just keep going forward. And I love this because God doesn't have to give him another sign. He does, though. And that's the kind of God that we serve, church. He's gracious. He's loving. He's kind. He's merciful. He's looking out for us. Look what Gideon does. When Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. I believe Judges chapter 7 verse 15 is the last pivotal hinge point. At 7.15, Gideon is ready. Gideon is going. Gideon has just received one last final confirmation from God. And I love this about Gideon, that he doesn't just fly headlong into the battle, but he pauses to worship. He's giving God glory for showing up in his life on behalf of the nation of Israel. Listen, our tendency is to go full speed all the time, every day of our lives, full speed. When do we recognize the Lord at work in our lives? Do we seldom, it seems, and Chris alluded to this morning a little bit, we stop and give him thanks. Do we do that? We seldom, it seems, pause to show our gratitude. Do we take a few moments to worship? You see, Gideon is about to head into battle. Real battle. He's about to head into battle. His troops are waiting for him to return. But Gideon is more concerned in this moment about worshiping his God than he is returning to his men. Gideon delighted in the Lord. God had been showing him all along what he was going to do. And now Gideon moves forward in faith, trusting that what God had just spoken, he was about to make good on. Essentially, what's confronted Gideon right here is, is he going to operate in fear? Is he going to look at how lopsided the numbers are? Or is he going to operate in faith? Here's what God has to say about the mission. And it's the same question that goes out to us today. You have, you have an opportunity, you have a choice. Are you going to operate in fear of your circumstance or what someone else may be doing? Or are you going to operate by faith, trusting that what God has promised, what he said in his word, he is more than able to do? How else does God get glory through Gideon? Hang in there, we're just about done. Number 80, fights with unique weapons. We see this from verse 16 on through the end of 7. Not only does Gideon have 300 men, but his men are fighting with a trumpet, an empty pitcher, and a torch. Not your typical uh, weapons of warfare, huh? We talk about this with Joshua. Joshua knew a little bit about that, God's system of warfare. And with Joshua, it was marching, ram's horns, and shouting. Right? In fact, the Bible gives us uh, some, some helpful uh, evidence here to see what God is up to and how God works in this way. 2 Corinthians 10 says, Paul says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. Mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity and to the obedience. So the weapons of our warfare, Paul says, are not carnal but mighty in God. There's something different about God's armament. His armor is different. God brings victory in the most unorthodox ways. And he specializes, as I read earlier, in taking the lowly and the weak and the least of these, which, by the way, is descriptive of Gideon. He, he, he saw himself in chapter 6 as the least as the weakest, God delights in using one of those folks. He delights in raising up those who are bowed down. He gets great glory when there seems to be no way possible. So when Gideon, when people see Gideon and they see the 300 men rout the Midianites and company, who gets the credit? God gets the credit. God gets the glory. It's his way. And after chasing down the remaining kings of Midian and completely destroying the enemy of 135,000, all 135,000 of them are gone. Gideon is seen then in chapter 8, rising up to kill Zeba and Zalmunna. How do you like those names? 
Zeba and Zalmunna. Those were the two kings of Midian. And it's here again that I would ask the question, how does God get glory through Gideon? I think finally we see here that God completes the good work started in him. God completes, he completes the good work started in him. We see this in Judges 8, 21 and 22. Not only does Gideon capture the Midianite kings, but he's the one who kills them. Gideon's son opts not to kill them. He's but a youth, this text says. And it seems like the two kings here take a shot at Gideon's manhood at this point. Rise yourself and kill us. For as a man is, so is his strength. You can almost picture how they said that. So Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camels' necks. That's 8, verse 21. While the point here is not to highlight the killing, I mention this because of where God had taken Gideon. The first words out of the Lord's mouth when he met him back in the wine press were, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. He wasn't a mighty man of valor back in the wine press. But see, God was naming him for who he would become. The Lord Jesus did that too, didn't he? He did that with Simon Peter. See, the battle is done with the killing of the kings. And Gideon's strength was not in himself, but in the God that he served. Gideon's strength was mighty because he had a God working through him and completing in him his good work. See, the world thinks that you're a man for showing off your strength. That's what the world thinks. Gideon rises up to kill these kings, and in doing so, he completes the good work God had started in him. God receives the glory for what he does in you, friends. And it's at this point when Israel says to Gideon, rule over us. Look at verse 22, chapter 8. Both you and your sons and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. Look at Gideon's response in verse 23. I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Do you think Gideon learned anything? And if you keep reading, you could probably make a case and go, well, I don't know. He didn't learn something for very long because he made another, he made a poor decision at the end of his life. Yes, he did. But it still doesn't dismiss what God did in him and through him. It doesn't dismiss the faith that Gideon had to move forward with God. It doesn't dismiss that Gideon was after God's glory. It doesn't dismiss what he says in response to being the ruler, being the one in charge. He points the people to the one who is the rightful ruler. This comes from the same Gideon who said back in Judges 6.13... Now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Verification, tests, signs, clarification, assurance, confidence. There's a lot of things that have happened since the people cried out for a deliverer. And God was working on one. You know, sometimes as you read the book of Judges, you see God just raises up someone and puts them right into the chute. And there they go and they're delivering. Not so with Gideon, huh? He's doing some work in the life of Gideon. He has to refine and shape and mold and get his attention before actually putting him into play. Perhaps that's what he has to do in your life too. God rescues his people through the hand of an unlikely source. But this is God's way. How is God going to get glory through your life? The one who has begun a good work in you. How is he completing that work in you? Is your life being lived intentionally so that God receives glory? Remember, glory is the supernatural signature where God has been at work. Tell me, has God been at work in your life? Has he been at work in your marriage? Has he been at work in your household? Has he been at work here in this body? Is there a desire for God's supernatural signature 
to be evident in your life? Is there a desire for God's supernatural signature to be in your home? To be in this place among His people? Psalm 29.2 says, Give the Lord the glory due His name. Listen, I think this is so important. That cycle we talked about earlier, the book of Judges, the cycle doesn't have to continue. Doesn't have to continue. Gideon sins at the end of his life by erecting an ephod from the plunder of the Midianite kings. And it's one of the last things that we read about in his life before he dies. And the people revert to their sinful patterns of worshiping Baal again. One writer says that Gideon passed the adversity test, but he failed the prosperity test. Maybe so. But I want you to know that God can always be trusted. The Bible says God cannot lie. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The Spirit is always going to point you toward the truth of the Scriptures. What He says, He does. So is your faith going to be in man or in God? Are you going to walk by faith or are you going to walk in fear? Will your life reflect God's glory? Listen, all the way to the finish line. I hope that sounds familiar because that's about all we've been talking about this year in the book of Hebrews. All the way to the finish line. Will your life reflect God's glory all the way to the finish line or will it point back to self in some way, shape, or form? Will your life, listen, will your life give someone a reason to turn away from God and revert back to the cycle? I'm afraid that's what happened with Gideon. For the many good things that he did, the many acts of obedience and walking with the Lord and following God's commands. Friends, we need to understand it only takes one sin. Sin has ramifications. First Corinthians 10, 31. Paul says, therefore, whether you eat or drink, pretty common, ordinary thing, right? Eating and drinking. Whether you eat or drink or, listen, whatever you do, do all, do you know how it ends? Do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let's pray. God, it's my desire that you get glory in my life, in my marriage, in my household in this church family of which we're a part. It's my desire that you get glory in the lives of everyone here. But Lord, my desire for that to happen can't really truly make it happen. There is, there is an element where everyone here has to, as Gideon found out, have to come out of the wine press be willing to follow you and walk with you by faith. I pray, Lord, we would desire not just to know facts about you, that we would desire not just an acquaintance relationship with you, but we would desire an intimate relationship with you, one that we are building on. We see in the life of Gideon, Gideon seems to be very concerned and consumed with uh, building a relationship with God before he goes into battle. And Father, I'm convinced that, that if we were to do some of that same thing before we go into some difficult times in our life, that we've worked on this relationship, we've talked with you, we've had fellowship with you, we've asked you questions, We've heard from you. We've sought you in your word and you've spoken and we've responded and there's this relational activity that's going on. I can't help but think, Lord, that our situations would be much different. Father, I pray that we would be more focused 
on getting rid of the Baals in our lives than we are getting rid of Midian. Help us to see the importance of dealing with our own sin. Help us to tear down those Baals, those wooden images that we might please you, that you might get glory through our lives. It's hard, Lord, to give you glory. We saw this early on in the message that disobedience to you, disobedience to your voice when you speak to us makes it impossible to give you glory. You are a God that demands allegiance and obedience. So, Father, I pray we would be a people who don't walk in our own stubborn ways, a people that are not stiff-necked, as the Scripture says, but a people who desire in whatever we do, whatever we do, to give you glory. And with that, Lord, I pray that you would be pleased and that, Lord, you would do great and mighty things through us for your sake, for your glory, for your honor, that people might be turned to you, not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.